Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Adam Davis, and joining me through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi, Emily. How's it going? Hi, Ed. I'm grand, thanks. How are you? I'm good. I, I've i had a very strange week. I, th- I feel I've made a YouTube mistake. I think that's the only way I could probably describe it. I've been watching a lot of videos by people like H Bomber Guy and Sean, who, for people who don't know, are very, very entertaining kind of um, leftist YouTube accounts. They often kind of do videos critiquing like the alt-right and things like that. And that's great. And they're very good at that. But the problem with YouTube's algorithm is that if it sees that you're watching videos that are critiquing (laughs) extreme right-wing views, it starts to think, maybe you want to watch videos that are extreme right-wing views. So my recommendations have completely gone to shit having for years and years been carefully maintained to only show me like light-hearted polygon content and now yeah so so i've had a very intellectually stimulating week but also one that's uh destroyed <laughs> destroyed youtube for me see that's the nice thing about an echo chamber if you stay in mm. the echo chamber you don't hear the blood-curdling screams of everything else in the world so yeah. I, I quite like so, my echo chamber. I'm a big fan of H Bomber Guy. His most recent mm. essay about a sort of Lovecraftian film that at the time he thought was terrible, but now has come back mm. to rewatch it and how that has had such a profound experience of him and understanding his own sexuality, I thought was one of the most moving and brilliant bits of personal film criticism I've seen in some time. Yeah, I was really blown away by that one. That was one of the, the first ones that I watched that in his two-hour dissection of uh, Sherlock and why Sherlock is bad. Uh, Two of the best pieces of criticism for very different reasons. Obviously, like, the Sherlock one is less personal than him, like, really delving into what that that Cthulhu movie meant him. But that is such a a piercing and perfect distillation of everything that I subconsciously knew was bad about Sherlock but could never quite articulate. Also, it helped that I stopped watching Sherlock, like, years ago, so I hadn't seen the fourth season which everyone says is really really bad and just seeing clips of it i was like yeah i made a, a good choice not watching this show after that terrible christmas special i had exactly the same experience with watching h bomber guy's epic sherlock uh sherlock sherlock <laughs> takedown sherlock's a very different show oh, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i nearly i nearly was about to introduce myself again as like yes i'm i'm matt's stand-in whilst he's being an adult but then that could be um shortened to matt's adult stand-in which sounds very wrong <laughs> <laughs> so i'm just gonna broadcast it now <laughs> yeah what am i like anyway yeah but uh yeah but the, the uh, h1 guy and sean are both very good contrapoint as well very very good but yeah um be, be careful out there. YouTube's algorithm can't really distinguish between videos critiquing terrible worldviews and videos just a, a, a espousing them. Yeah, it's really brilliant at finding copyrighted material. Wonder, mm-hmm. wonder what that's about, huh? Yeah. So we'll go on to the news for this week and uh, we'll start with some sad news that broke just hours ago, which was that uh, Barry Chuckle of the Chuckle Brothers, a, I would have to say, British institution of of many years standing i think anyone who grew up in the only 90 kids 90s kids will remember um, 
but also some two thousand kids maybe will remember their show on the BBC, which was uh, hugely popular, certainly when I was at school, and everyone constantly uh, having to say to me, to you, every time you had to carry something and move it around, something that's carried through to the current day. Anytime I have to lift something and someone's <laughs> helping me, I feel the need to say to me, to you, but they don't really get it over here. I think you can tell kind of when someone grew up because when you're moving a piece of furniture, you either say to me, to you, or you just scream, pivot! Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely uh, the two key cultural signifiers of a certain, a certain generation of <laughs> British people. But yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very sad. Like, I can't say that I was keeping up with the Chuckle Brothers' later work. And and I think mainly what they've been doing in the years since is, I guess, you know, kind of going around and doing live shows around the place. They're always very prolific live performers. But uh, yeah, I, I feel a, a great deal of affection for the Chuckle Brothers. They were they they definitely remind me of you know a very kind of innocent and naive period in my life. You like they they and and just like the style of comedy they did, which was very very simplistic. You know, just kind of very funny wordplay and visual gag stuff that worked for you know a very very young audience but kind of had a, a, almost a timeless vaudeville quality to them as well i think vaudeville is exactly the word because i think there's an awful lot particularly in terms of their wordplay which is quite uh stan and, and laurel and um uh like mark's brothers mm. and again these yeah. because it's just really it is kind of simplistic in the sense that it is maybe naive um, and clean because it's mm. not raunchy at all. Like it's it's really for kids and it's essentially kids will never find anything funnier than an adult pretending to be a kid. And that's what mm. the Chuckle Brothers did in their shows. And I think there's a real yeah love of language, uh, you know, not afraid to do slapstick or seem just really out of place. Because they are they're these two middle-aged guys with massive tashes just going on adventures, which as a premise is like, what? But no, I am so really fond of them. And I think so many people like of our generation are going to be really quite sad because I think mm. you, because they were around and they were already quote unquote grown up when you saw them they kind of had this forever sort of quality to them. It was like, they're never going to mm. age because they're already a certain age on screen when they got famous and um, I really, really feel for Paul. I think it's just terrible. But I, th the thing that really struck me with my now vaguely uh, grown-up position um, is I don't think I know of any other children's entertainers that were northern and on telly at that point. They were some of the first Yorkshire voices I ever heard. And I think that is a, a loss because you still don't hear it an awful mm. lot on CBBC, like, yes, children's content from the BBC has mainly moved to Salford, but all of your CBBC presenters, your Blue Peter presenters, even if they say they're from, you know, down down the road in Manchester, they do not sound Mancunian. Mm. So I think that's that's a loss, and it made me think, realise, again, because I, I sound incredibly homogenised, <laughs> um, that I just, I, I'm so sick of hearing other people that necessarily talk like me. Um, mm. And yeah, I think that's, that's a loss. Yeah, and I think as ever with when someone dies, and particularly someone who's so well-liked, it's nice seeing like social media 
very briefly become just a place of people sharing like nice memories and just their favorite quotes like someone was a lot of people have been sharing some of their favorite jokes from the chuckle brothers and one that really made me laugh when i saw it reshared was uh them saying uh that's a nice church vicar it's norman oh that's a nice church norman <laughs> which is such it's a just silly perfect it's just a perfect a silly joke. joke really sweet and off the cuff and that delivery is so good as well because you yeah. can just hear them say it in terms of uh i have one slightly scary point and one much nicer point the scary point mm-hmm. is that i'm not sure how aware you're uh on your coast in your part of the world uh how aware people are of limmy but limmy is a glaswegian <laughs> uh comic yeah. and all-round gadfly to the world and his twitter feed it ranges between absolute being absolutely batshit in the best possible way his recent stuff on tommy robinson has been a real relief in in terms of all of the of the madness but he has a running gag as he has many whenever a celebrity dies he tweets exactly the same thing which is i once met name of deceased at a charity do once they were down to earth and very funny Mm -hmm. and that's become like a saving grace for me in terms of someone dying it's like but i'll see the limmy tweet and i'll manage to laugh through particularly if it's someone that i'm really sad about who's who's left the planet but the BBC retweeted it <laughs> as if it were real and quoted him saying it was real. And yeah. I think that BBC Scotland and BBC News need to talk to each other more. My nicer point is that um, when I'm not uh, having fun chatting films and, and telly and all things media with you is that my day job is I'm a subtitler just now. Mm-hmm. And uh, my absolute hero of a workmate had uh, an old episode of Chuckle Vision land on her desk and uh part of subtitling is not just transcripting the speech or editing and doing all the tech stuff it's also sound cues Mm. and sound labels and so every time barry or paul laughed of course it was barry chuckles paul chuckles (laughs) you've got to find your kick somewhere but she's my hero for that and the first person i thought of when i heard the news (laughs) (laughs) in much happier news we learned yesterday at the tcas the television critics association uh that uh, sir patrick stewart is going to be reprising his role as jean-luc picard on a new star trek series that's going to be debuting on cbs's all access streaming channel the same channel that gave us the recent star trek discovery and presumably that means it's going to be on netflix everywhere else in the world because that's how cbs's stuff tends to get out there as they put it on their one app that oh, absolutely no one has in the us <laughs> and then globally everyone gets it on netflix and i guess that kind of works out for them but i'm very excited about that i'm a big fan of star trek the next generation it was one of my favorite shows as a kid and uh, I, I still have a very clear memory of watching the first half of the two-part uh with uh where Jean-Luc Picard becomes part of the Borg which uh really blew my mind when I was like six or seven uh I, I couldn't believe that this was happening on my favorite TV show and uh, it still remains like for me one of the the highlights of any TV show I've ever seen and I have such a, a great affection for Patrick Stewart and that character and even though I'm a little trepidatious because it's being overseen by Alex Kurtzman who is the guy who has been like overseeing star trek discovery a little bit but not too much but who also 
like wrote the Transformers movies and the less good Star Trek movies that J.J. Abrams made. Ooh. And that has me a little concerned, but at the same time, it was hard not to get excited about seeing Patrick Stewart play that role again and what he can bring to the character now more than 20 years after the show went off the air. Oh, so excited. There's something about how Patrick Stewart, because he's, you know, a classically trained actor and he and he played mm. Jean-Luc Picard as a Shakespearean hero. Yeah. And there was something that he did in terms of taking it so sincerely that just elevated the show. And I mm. think set a tone for it for people to be like, well, you know, it's actually not just people people in red shirts getting you know killed off in the first 20 minutes it's not Shatner kind of squinting off into the distance <laughs> yeah. and it and it managed to bring so much credence and like credibility yeah I'm just repeating myself there but it managed to bring so much to the show and I think it's really exciting to see what will happen I'm not a major Trekkie whenever I watch it I really enjoy it and I am a Janeway girl at heart but mm-hmm. Jean-Luc Picard is such a fascinating TV character. And Patrick Stewart as well is just, he seems like a really good guy and really fun. Mm. Whenever I'm pretty sad, which is often, I Google Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen and their tiny bowler hats going on friend adventures together. Yeah. And it never ceases to just lift my spirits. And there's lots of great little snippets and gifs out there of him cracking up on set or or (laughs) he's just got the most wickedly mischievous oops face I've ever seen which is class (laughs) also the Picard and Riker being cooler than anything in the world 10 hour supercut I believe is still on YouTube so that might be able to uh heal heal your algorithm a bit if you stick that on (laughs) yes yeah that's definitely an option I I I also think that Patrick Stewart just seems like one of the most lovely wonderful people like anytime you see him being interviewed he seems just really uh tickled by where he has reached in his career and how it's gone and he's always so effusive and supportive when he works with younger actors like i remember when he was being interviewed for the release of green room and he would be talking about anton yelchin and working with him and obviously that was a tinge of sadness but you could really tell that he felt a great deal of affection for him and the work that they've done together. And also, I think one of the nice things is that you really tell, you can really tell that he loves the fact that Picard is such a beloved character. Like, he never seemed to be weighed down by the fact that that was what he did, even though I think, you know, he went into that whole project with certain trepidation and there's stories about him basically living out of his car for most of the first season of Star Trek because he did not think it was going to happen and that it was going to get cancelled and he would be going back to England so he wasn't expecting it to be a success but you can really tell that he loves that character and what it means to people which I think is something that people can get soured on certainly Shatner did Uh, Shatner had a very long journey to accepting the fact that people like Star Trek Um, so, so it's just nice to know that if he's returning to the role it's because you know he likes playing the character you know not because uh it's kind of like like his career needs it because you know he's fine (laughs) he's he's doing whatever he wants and i also one of the many other reasons i love him he's a dedicated anti-domestic violence campaigner 
Mm, after yeah. the experience he had with um, witnessing his mother and his abusive father. So props to you, Sustu. Absolutely. So our main topic this week is rewatching movies or the rewatching media, I guess, maybe more broadly, uh, inspired by the fact that uh, I mentioned last week that I am watching or I'm reading the David Lynch book Room to Dream, which is, you know, kind of covers his whole career. And as such, that has taken me to uh, has has made me rewatch a load of his movies, particularly the ones that I'm uh, less familiar with, like The Elephant Man, which I remember watching once at uni and thinking was good but not really thinking of again uh and re-watching this time thinking oh no this is like as much of a masterpiece as the rest of his stuff and absolutely as lynchian as they come uh not kind of a the easy accessible movie that i had long thought it would be and also re-watching uh speaking of patrick stewart dune which is uh i had remembered it as being terrible and i rewatched it and thought that's ah, fine <laughs> it's not a, a great lost masterpiece but it's it's certainly a lot better than i thought um uh, and the, lots of fun but you know that that got me thinking about you know the the way in which how we rewatch movies changes over time like i certainly remember like as a kid i rewatched movies a lot more than i do now like i would latch on to a single movie and just you know kind of like wear out the vhs on it and nowadays i tend to watch movies like once and maybe twice and then that's more or less it but uh, yeah so it got me thinking about the reasons why that happened and how rewatching changes as as we age i was exactly the same kid as you ed i don't think my mother has yet or ever will forgive me for how many times she ended up watching mary poppins and bedknobs and broomsticks because mm-hmm. I would literally finish it, rewind it and start from the top again. And I'm quite a lot like that with music these days, funnily enough. Although I think what's interesting is how technology has played such a huge part in the idea of rewatching now. Because we talk about binge watching and yeah, you can watch an entire series from top to bottom in one go. But I remember, again, growing up and in my uh, developing cinephilia, there was nothing more exciting than going to HMV and seeing what were in the, I think it was, get this right, Emily, I think it was three for 20 VHS deals. And often I would buy them on a punt and then end up being really happy that I had them or some I'd, you know, take back or, or give to someone else. And then, you know, it was only a matter of years after I started, you know, a couple of years after I started doing that and then DVD came out and then it was three for 10 (laughs) and then VHS was out there and then I'd buy DVDs and Mm -hmm. and rent DVDs but the thing is it's there's something so amazing about having like a tangible object to hold and and honestly I still have a DVD collection I have a DVD player because it's all bundled up into my PS4 but I I still rarely actually turn to the Mm -hmm. DVD case and pick it out and watch the dvd i know i can and sometimes that's the most comforting thing i just see it there and feel better for knowing it's there physically in the world whereas now if i watch something like for example i watched the florida project for the first time the other week and it absolutely blew me away Mm -hmm. it 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 tore me a new one as in my heart it broke it and then fixed it and I just think it's such a staggeringly beautiful piece of work and I love Sean Baker and I'm just so excited to see what he does next because his career has been great to follow. But 
watching it, I thought, man, I might actually buy this on Blu-ray. That was how good it was. Mm-hmm. And I think there's so much significance now in buying a DVD or buying a tangible physical thing because I could just stream it again. But there's something, no, I need it and I need to hold it. Yeah, I had that most recently with uh, a less um, emotionally satisfying or, or a less emotionally kind of uh, complicated movie than The Florida Project in Game Night which was uh, a movie that a lot of people had said, this is really, really funny. And I thought, oh, I'll check it out. But I never got around to seeing it in the cinema. So I I rented it and watched it digitally. And I thought, that's really, really funny. I'm going to watch it again. So I watched it like (laughs) two or three times on the 48-hour rental that I had. And then I thought, I really want to get a Blu-ray of this because I get the feeling this is going to be like a movie that I recommend to people and want to lend to people or that I just want to kind of like throw on after a long day of work or whatever. And it has the perfect kind of like comfort movie feel to it in that it's a lot of charming actors saying very funny jokes that and kind of like has a story that resolves itself in, you know, like an hour and 40 minutes or however long it is and that it's been a but it's been a very long time since i had i've had a, a movie like that where as soon as i finished watching it in a non kind of physical form i thought i really want to have this like near at hand in case i ever i ever need to foist it upon someone or just you know decide man it's been a tiring day i'm gonna watch game night again i'm desperate to watch game right now that sounds great it's funny because when I remember when you um, posed to me that, that this is what we we're going to talk about. And I thought, great. And the first thing that came to my mind in terms of rewatching is what I like to think of a mac and cheese film. Like it's really simple. It's guaranteed. Mm-hmm. It's warming and comforting and a little bit bad if you did it all the time. But it's just such a there's a gentleness yeah. to it as well. That's something reasonably inoffensive even though a lot of my comfort films are quite could be quite offensive because a lot of them are just absolutely ridiculous comedies the film that I have watched Mm -hmm. the most in the past year and a half because I watch it on average every couple of months at least is pop star never stop never stopping which I keep referring to I find it keeps sneaking its way into thing other things I'm talking about because clearly I'm watching it all the fucking time so I am finding this but it is just so <laughs> giddily brilliant I absolutely love the the Lonely Island I think they're incredibly smart people and have basically they they have saved SNL for an, another few years at least maybe mm. at easily another decade in terms of making that shift to digital, of doing the digital shorts, of having a really successful... Like, their songs are great. Their songs are actually good songs that happen to be really funny as well. And original, too. Popstar Never Stop Never Stopping is absolutely one that I... You know, I went and saw opening weekend in the US, one of the few people who did, because that movie was surprisingly unpopular, considering it's, you know, a riotous good time comedy, and everyone seems to like The Lonely Island. And as soon as it came out on blu-ray and this is you know i don't buy a huge amount of blu-rays certainly not newer movies like i'm more kind of like oh that you know criterion is putting out something i'll pick it up or whatever uh as soon as it, be- it came out on blu-ray i was like yes i have to own this i have to uh 
own it and show it to as many people as I can because I think this movie is absolutely incredible and The Lonely Island is so... Like you say, they're so smart. Like, I always think that um, uh, it, the, the song Equal Rights is... Oh, my God. ...such a funny, enjoyable song in its own right, but that extra layer of complexity of showing that uh, Connor for real is so behind the times and out of touch that he's making a song about equal rights after gay marriage has been legalized and everyone's kind of like yeah this this song you don't really need this song whilst also stressing at every point how very heterosexual he is um yes i think yeah i think it's brilliant i think the thing that okay i'm gonna come out and say it it's better than this is spinal tap because Mm. this is spinal tap is really funny Mm-hmm. But it doesn't really seem to make as much of a comment about celebrity and fame and how fickle things are in the whole entertainment industry. Whereas pop star Never Stop Never Stopping, I just love saying it over and over again, really does. And it's satire. And mm. everyone is giddily sort of ridiculous. And, and there's so many great cameos from not only musicians and, and pop stars, but a lot of the kind of SNL crowd, which is really fun. Imogen Poots actually has a really fantastic (laughs) small bit in it. Emma Stone pops up. Oh, it's just great. So that is my, that is my game night. So you've got game night and I've got pop star, never stop, never stopping. But then in terms of there's that kind of really relaxing sort of comfort. But then I think you've also got the kind of that genuinely more emotional. Actually, if I watch this film, the world will be a better place. Mm. Than, I, than it was before I started it. And I think that's, you know, mentioning H. Bomber guy in the news and his beautiful piece about that Cthulhu film. It's, it's amazing how, you know, he sort of dismissed it the first time he watched it, but he was in a place where he was actually really um, dismissive of himself and a part of himself. And then being able to look on it and himself more kindly coming back, I think is a really beautiful thing. For me, though, I have to say, in terms of, Rewatching films now for that kind of soothing that kind of is quite spiritual for me mm-hmm. because six feet six feet under is my bible mm-hmm. when, when people are religious and know which passage of the bible to read I, I always found it really bizarre this idea of like but how can the bible it's just the same thing you know because I was an ignorant little shit you know why are you just going back and reading the same thing what are you going to see in it differently this time and i get it now i totally get it because that's what i do with 6 feet under because they feel chapter and versey but in a really sort of dark spiritual occasionally really funny always really moving in some way and it manages to just kind of push out whatever block i have um in me and so six feet under is the tv show that i've watched the most parks and rec always gets another mm. spin but you know what you know what ed it's so hard to re-watch stuff like parks and recreation just now it used to be my cuddly warm everything's going to be all right place and now it's like well i have to skip this episode because louis ck is in it and i have to skip this episode because aziz ansari is still you know it's re-watching i think is going to get harder and harder <laughs> Mm. and and to and for the right reasons don't get me wrong but i do think there is also a general discussion off the back of things like but this discussion has been going on forever yes me too and and times up are kind of at the forefront of the discourse but polanski's always 
been a rapist. Yeah. <laughs> like, but everyone still talks about Chinatown and I wish they didn't. So it, it can be quite... And so sometimes I think maybe I just don't watch anything at all because it, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so raw emotionally that like having to see that would just tip me over the edge. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's certainly something that I've found myself uh, in the last last year or so having to basically cut off pizza, pieces of art that I'm like, oh, I used to watch that all the time. It's like, oh, no, not, yeah. not anymore. The the most uh, recent, the, the, the one that really comes to mind, mainly because we did a whole episode on it last year, was the Polygon video series Carboys. Yeah. Because one of the people who made it nick robinson you know not long after they finished that series uh, it came out that he had been sexually harassing female games journalists and developers and yeah so now it's like oh well guess that thing that i've watched about 40 times because it was such a easy fun thing to have on in the background when i was at work has uh, is now completely tainted and i cannot cannot in good conscience watch it anymore stupid abusers ruining everything yeah I was just trying to think about any movies that uh, I, I certainly, that, that really kind of like I watch for kind of catharsis. And I think probably the main one for me is probably Spirited Away. Oh. Because that was one that I, like, I think the last period when I really, really rewatched movies like a ton was when I first moved to uni. Because, you know, it's a very disruptive period in you know in life is moving away for uni that you know i even though uh i was only like an hour train journey away from uh, r- away from home you know it's still having you know lived in the same house with you know your, your family for years and, like suddenly moving away is very very disruptive and so i would watch a lot of stuff initially i would watch a lot of stuff that was like I was very, very familiar with. So, like, I watched a lot of The Simpsons over and over again and Futurama, uh, including with the commentaries. Like, I probably watched Futurama, the first oh, four series of Futurama. The with Futurama, the commentary on. those commentaries are brilliant. Sorry, I just had to cut in there because I, I have done exactly the same. Yeah, like, just hearing... They've got a very soothing voice. I can kind of see, like, that as being my gateway to podcasting is just... Oh, God, uh, yeah, totally, actually. And the other thing about those commentaries I remember so clearly was that it made me want to work with them. It felt like they had mm. such fun and they really liked each other. That just came across so strongly to me. And I was like, I still, you know, I still harbour dreams of of being a voice actor, thanks to Billy West. Yeah, he's he's, he's wonderful. Joe DiMaggio uh, is... Just, uh, sorry, John DiMaggio. <laughs> the other. Yeah. <laughs> Jay DiMaggio. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I, I also, that was also, you know, I had a little bit of disposable income, income just because of, you know, having a student loan, I guess, and not being that good with money. So I thought, oh, I have this money in my bank account. I'm going to go to FOP and just buy a bunch of cheap DVDs. And uh, one of the first ones I remember picking up cheap was Spirited Away. And that became just such a... Or partly it's like the Joe Hisayashi music, you know, which is very kind of wonderful plaintive piano that is very nice to have on in the background if you're writing an essay or doing some reading or whatever. And so it became something of an ambient background noise work of art for me that I would just have on whenever I was uh whenever I was doing some work or any time I was feeling kind of lonely or upset or anything and now whenever I rewatch it it does fill me with like this real kind of 
this real kind of like warmth every time I watch it, and, and that's true of a lot of the Miyazaki movies and the Studio Ghibli movies. But that one, I think, because I discovered it at that particular point in my life, that one has a real strong emotional pull on me. That even ones that maybe I prefer as stories or you know visually or whatever uh, don't have. I think the the it's funny that I haven't brought it up sooner, but in terms of watching in the cinema, I think one of the great cultural touchstones of my life growing up was Lord of the Rings. Mm. And it would almost become a kind of really jokey competition and really gleeful because we just all wanted to go back and keep watching it. But with my friends at school, it was how many times have you seen it now? And we were all breaking double figures. Wow. And it was just that giddiness of something that felt so important. Because, of course, that was until Star Wars came back properly. You know, you had the prequels, but this was the start of something new. This was our trilogy. And, you know, you knew that the films, the other films were going to come. You were just so excited the week before. It was all round about Christmas again. So it was this thing of, like, school will finish, we'll all watch Lord of the Rings together, and then we'll go and spend Christmas with our families. And this kind of rewatching and this touchstone point this really solid thing that we could all kind of point to in our as then short little lives kind of like a ritual Mm -hmm. it was kind of like a rite of passage absolutely and the number of my friends who we will all still sit around watching the extended editions because it's all really beautiful and the music's great particularly when you're hungover I cannot recommend watching (laughs) all of the extended editions at, at once um there's also a fantastic, actually, there's also a fantastic drinking game where you stick the commentary on for Fellowship of the Ring and you drink every time that they sound particularly fraternal or say how beautiful New Zealand is and you get absolutely smashed in the first 25 minutes. <laughs> so, you know, hangover, uh, hangover cause or hangover cure, it's up to you. Um, but recently, the film that I actually went back to see again in the cinema was The Death of Stalin. Mm which Jeffrey Tambor has now ruined for me. Thanks. But I'll try. I'll try and get around it because it's so... I was so giddy because I am such an Armando Iannucci fan um, from, you know, his stuff with Chris Morris and the Armando Iannucci shows on Channel 4, which I still think are really underrated, funnily enough. Like, I think they're really overlooked in terms of the British comedy canon because I think they are... They've actually set up for a lot of what happens today in terms of this kind of slight angle to the universe really nutty sort of transitions but still a real sort of through line in terms of like you know sketches and things but also Armando sort of playing a version of himself my cat you know my cat is called Malcolm Tucker I think we can we can get on how much of a our fando I am Um, but I went to see the death of Stalin the first time he was actually in attendance in at a premiere at Glasgow Film Theatre and did a Q&A. Um, and then I dragged my friends to see it with me because I just thought it was so good. Um, I actually ended up falling asleep by accident because I was absolutely knackered and I'd already obviously seen it, so <laughs> which was embarrassing. Um, but I still love it. And again, one of those things that I will come back to and watch again because I think it's such a timely um, piece on... It ends up being, you know, about human rights and and power and 
I think Iannucci's films are, are really amazing in terms of being really, really funny and having stakes. And then when everything goes to shit, as it inevitably does, you're left in this weird kind of tense suspension. Um, and I think they're really, really interesting. Just before we came on to record this, I was talking about how I watched for the first time The King of Comedy mm. and it absolutely blew my mind. I thought it was amazing. I think, again, it has that very similar um really dark and nuanced gear shift just towards the end um but you were saying that you rewatched it after jerry lewis died yeah i did because i that it was one of those movies that i had watched at university like i had a very uh, uh, there's like a lot of movies that i watched like once at university like i say because of things like fop and detail uh, deals at hmv you just go in and just buy a bunch of cheap movies and just yeah. have them around to watch and that was one that i remember watching and really really liking and maybe not being at the point of being able to say that it was like a a masterpiece but more because like i think i hadn't seen enough scorsese movies at that point and so i felt like uh i was very kind of like aware of being like oh this is scorsese's masterpiece it's like oh, i've seen three of his movies um it kind of feels like uh, you can't uh you can't quite make that sort of judgment if you've you haven't watched you know his whole range of work but that was one that i remember being like really really impressed by uh and at a time when it was starting to be rediscovered but it hadn't quite achieved the level it has now where you know if people are listing their favorite Scorsese movies as people seem to do every like three weeks on Twitter, then it certainly shows up on a lot of people's top fives and rewatching it after Jerry Lewis died. I was just really struck by how, how funny the movie is in terms of like that. It does have sequences that are clearly just structured as this is a very funny gag that we're going to do, such as the scene where, where Jerry is being held hostage by, uh, pupkin and being forced to kind of phone in his own ransom demand and pupkin is there holding up like cue cards and as they're going along they realize that some of the cue cards are upside down or out of order and jerry lewis kind of plays the scene off as being just he's really put out by the whole thing and it's just a really funny dark sketch but it's also so nuanced in terms of its depiction of rupert pupkin as a as like a guy who is just an out-and-out sociopath, but because we are used to relating to the lead characters of movies, like, you kind of still want him to succeed for at least a little bit of it, you know, until he starts kidnapping people. Like, you do just kind of think, oh, he's just like a sad sack loser who just needs a break, and then you, as it goes along, you realise, oh no, this guy is, like, legitimately a dangerous person mm. and really shouldn't, people shouldn't be helping him in any way and and there's just such an exquisite awkwardness to the whole movie that, particularly pre-kidnapping when Pupkin, having had this one kind of in with, with Jerry, uh, you know, like, shows up at his house with his girlfriend and he's told his girlfriend that he knows jerry and they're like friends and he asked him to pop by and the, the 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 people who work for jerry are kind of unsure what to do and they don't know if they should kick him out or if like there's been a miscommunication or something and the scene just goes on 
for so long and it's so kind of like awkward and you really feel for for the for the girlfriend character who's just been kind of like caught up in the whole thing and i think it does it's probably the best example from scorsese's filmography of his ability to depict and critique like real terrible human beings like there's no instance in the movie where you feel as if you're meant to really identify with him once you have seen you know his little basement studio set and everything and realize oh he's he's like deranged and is going to pursue fame by any means necessary uh once you get past that point you realize oh this guy is not a good person but because he's depicted as the hero like you're forced to really think about the way in which you relate to movies and the way that stories are told and i think that's probably one of the the best examples from his filmography which of, of him being able to do that which is a trick he kind of does a lot like you see it in oh. goodfellas and wolf wall street like those are definitely tri- that's definitely like one of his recurring traits as a filmmaker oh completely i love his little cameo in it as a director being like i don't know what to do just you know just take these tissues out of your collar and off you go. But it's such a, <laughs> it's such a timely film. I think that's it because it hits mm. on so many of those, and it's a it's a pattern. Like Pupkin's Rise is is something that we see again and again, and I think that's why there are certain films that do, even though they seem very specific. Like wh- why would a film about a, str- a struggling stand up and a really established one in the 80s you know how is that universal but it is mm. because it manages to tap into all of those themes and that kind of and that's something where i think you come can come back to it and learn something a little bit different about it those those themes each time even though they seem you know same as it ever was another thing that i was just thinking about there in terms of it's funny how so much of rewatching we're talking about is really it's really nostalgic it's about mm. things that kind of made a, a claim on us in our in our hearts and in our formation early on and, and have stuck with us in some way but I end up watching a lot of films again that I don't want to watch or at least I went through a big phase of that particularly as I was starting to uh, have interactions with boys and booze mm-hmm. and I think I it took me four years to actually watch the entirety of sin city because for some reason every every little fucker uh that i was interested in would we'd be drinking and it would get to a point where they'd be like i'm gonna put on sin city and i was like oh no and i would just (laughs) i would my system would just swoop in and save me and i'd pass out kind of just as uh jessica alba was doing her thing and then i finally watched it the entirety of it completely sober and thought yeah no it's terrible i was right (laughs) but i think the funny thing is is i think when we are living in such an age of there's like a glut basically like we we Mm. there is so much to watch all the time and it feels really even if you're a fan or if you're a critic it can feel quite desperate and a bit compulsive because you're like, oh my God, I, I need to be current. I need to be on top of everything. And it's just coming at you left, right and centre. And so to paraphrase a really beautiful um, idiom, uh, I think to in a world that is pressuring you to watch every new thing, going back and watching something you really love is a rebellious act. Yeah. Yeah, I, I certainly find 
myself being a little less stressed not trying to keep up with everything that's new like compared to a couple years ago where like I felt like I was really falling behind if I hadn't watched like the latest episode of Breaking Bad or Parks and Rec or whatever and those are shows I I love and I was glad that I did keep up with them because it was like you know they're, they're great shows but there was definitely a sense of like if you were a week behind, particularly once Twitter really took off and everyone was talking oh God, about yeah. every plot detail, it was just like, well, I guess I missed that discussion. <laughs> yeah. I guess uh, I guess I'm behind on the discourse. And now, I think, conversely, now that there's so much stuff that it's impossible, like it literally is impossible for everyone to keep up with every show that's good <laughs> and on the air, uh, there's just that sense of like, oh, well, I'll catch that when it shows up on Netflix or whatever, or, you know, like... If um, once it gets added to to Hulu or something, I'll I'll check out that show. Whereas, you know, like one of the things that I've really enjoyed doing this year, and we talked about it on the show a while ago, was like rewatching old episodes of ER, which I haven't watched in a very very long time. Oh yeah. Or catching up with shows I've never seen. Like I've been watching Cowboy Bebop for the first time over the last like four or five months or so, uh, just kind of picking up an episode here or there, and that's quite nice. Partly because, you know, it's cool watching this show and realising, oh yeah, everyone was right, this is really fun. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I would have really enjoyed this if I had watched it, like, years and years ago instead of now. Uh, although, like, it was a lot harder to watch it in, like, 2004 or five when I first started hearing people talk about Cowboy Bebop. Oh god, um, yeah. But it, it's also, you also get that thing where when you post on Twitter that you're watching this older show that people like like people are more likely to join in and just say oh yeah that show's really good and talk about their favorite things from it as opposed to newer episodes because people are like they're worried about spoilers so they won't maybe won't respond or they're like people are at so many different places in the 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 where the show is it's like oh yeah i'm catching up you know it'd be great to uh, you know, let me know. I'll let you know what I think. You know, when I've finished watching it, and then they never do because the people have like moved on, and like you forget about this one conversation you had on Twitter like four weeks ago. Uh, and I think that if you're watching something that's older and kind of discovering it for the first time, like that opens up possibilities for people just to kind of like jump in and have like really fun discussions about it. Which I think newer stuff it is possible to have, but I think like the the rush to have a take on something kind of can sometimes preclude that i totally agree <laughs> <laughs> we end this episode as we end all our episodes with shot reverse shot recommends in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for us this week may i be really cheeky ed and recommend two go on then Oh, thank you. Okay, so um, <laughs> <laughs> the first one is for anyone who happens to be in or around the Edinburgh Fringe. Last year, uh, my wonderful friend Harry Harris recommended me to go and sit in this uh, shipping container for 15 minutes, courtesy of a company called Darkfield. And uh, it was for a, an immersive oral show. Uh, so audio only, but you're sitting in a in a dark room uh, called Seance. And thinking back to uh, our horror episode, it's one of the most visceral physical experiences I've ever had in my life. I came out hysterical, like hysterically laughing because I couldn't believe how scared I'd been. And it was just brilliant. And they've got a new show called Flight. Uh, so it might not be uh, for nervous flyers, but I cannot wait. I think as soon as uh, I hit the station, 
I am going to go right there because uh, it just looks bonkers. And that's what I'm into, if you and the audience hadn't already gathered. My second recommendation is how to make it in USA. So off the back of uh, your recommendation of uh, Joe Perra Talks to You <laughs> and uh, my undying love for Conor O'Malley. I know he's married to A.D. Bryant, but I'm sure we can all come to some sort of agreement. Um there is a web series that they did uh, called How to Make It in USA. I think there's nine episodes on YouTube and they're about six, seven minutes long. Some are even shorter. And it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. It is this perfect improvised. It's a little bit like, so it's all the best bits of extras, which for me were Stephen Merchant and uh, Ricky Gervais as the agent and uh, an actor. So Conor O'Malley plays this agent called Max Gold and Joe Perra is essentially himself and Max Gold is everything but Joe Perra is not (laughs) um so it's as a comedy of opposites it's again quite a straightforward premise but absolutely genius and Max Gold's one seeming agent trick is to uh, his one strategy is to phone up cruise ships and try and beg them to take Joe Perra on their cruise ship and it's wonderful because you can just see, I was talking about it with my my friend who I enthusiastically recommended it to and he was kind of updating me in real time as he was watching it and he said, everyone looks like they're just about mm-hmm. to break. It's totally like, it's like watching Peter Cook and Chris Morris try and make the other one laugh and they're really going toe to toe. There are points where the cameraman mm-hmm. just absolutely loses it and the camera goes like incredibly shaky for a while. Um, so that's that's a little. Uh, if you watch it back to back, I think it's probably about half an hour, forty minutes. Um, but or you could uh, treat yourself to an episode every day. But that's my other one. Yeah, that that show is absolutely wonderful. I started watching it after you recommended it to me, and yeah, it's the way in which those two play off of each other with their diametrically opposed energy <laughs> is uh, is a real delight, and uh, particularly when they're going out onto the streets of New York and um, like Max is trying to get people to pay to watch Joe tell a joke on the street and like that that sort of stuff it could be so cringy or so it could fall so flat and I'm sure like some of the stuff they shot did fall flat and they've only included the really good stuff obviously because why would you include it when when stuff goes wrong but it is just so amazing watch those watching those two do this kind of like high wire act of playing these two characters that are sort of not dissimilar from like their own personalities by the looks thing although it's hard to tell with Conor O'Malley um but uh, and kind of going out into the real world and finding like the right people the the, the and finding people who really know how to play off of them and and it's a real gem of improvised comedy which is obviously which is something that uh there's all too, all too much of in uh <laughs> film and television and podcasts and web series at the moment but it's one of the better versions of it i'm going to recommend mission impossible fallout which i went to see yesterday i'm a big fan of all of the mission impossible movies and uh going back to the first one which uh in into keeping with the topic was a movie i rewatched a lot because it always seemed to be on bbc2 uh <laughs> it just constantly on and I was, uh, I, I've probably watched that movie like 15 or 20 times just because it happened to be on and it was always a good time. And I really like how the series has grown, you know, since J.J. Abrams took over it, directing the third one and producing all the subsequent ones. I think 
the way in which it has used and uh, abused Tom Cruise's body, um, particularly in this last one where he broke his ankle in a uh, uh, doing a stunt and then can visibly be seen hopping away to complete the scene, even though he's clearly in a great deal of pain, um, is is really uh, great. I think it understands his capacity as a physical performer incredibly well. And he and Christopher McQuarrie, who have now made three or four films together, like he's because he directed Jack Reacher and the last two, um, the last two Mission Impossible movies, but also has written a bunch of his projects over the last few years. I think they have developed a really good working relationship and they seem to get what each other's strengths are and it's just it's hugely enjoyable you know there's a there's an amazing fight scene in a bathroom which takes for good five ten minutes of the movie and is really visceral and ex- visceral and exciting the, the entire last 40 minutes just had me giggling because it's just this absolutely insane helicopter chase between these two helicopters which keeps escalating and there's even some almost like uh buster keaton comedy moments to it where you think oh this can't possibly get any worse oh wait (laughs) it just got way worse for these people and and that is uh it's just such a, a joyous and silly and wonderfully enjoyable spectacle of action cinema and i i heartily recommend it also it's it's one of the best paced action movies i think in recent memory you know it's nearly two and a half hours long but it didn't feel like it at all to me like it sped by and when i suddenly realized we're at the climax it's like oh wow this movie doesn't feel as long as it is it's just uh it's really really fun and also you know it's it's assembled such a fun cast of supporting characters at this point between um simon pegg and uh ving rames but also you know rebecca ferguson's back michelle monaghan shows up uh, and Sean Harris is very, very funny as the villain. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's just very weird that Sean Harris is in the villain in two very, very big budget blockbusters, but he, he seems to be having a very good time. Sean Harris is great. I, weirdly enough, uh, I was a production trainee on a Channel 4 series called Southcliff back in the day, and he plays the kind of main, mm. uh, your main antagonist, if you want to put it that way. And uh, he came from a re- shooting unfortunate uh term there but from shooting shooting his mum uh and then uh, in in the show in the world of the show and then sped over to the location that we were and uh, I was sent to sort of greet him and sort of chaperone and he just uh stared at me right in the face and just shouted I just shot my mum and I went <laughs> and I went yeah yeah I think you did and that was that was my Sean Harris story it's <laughs> a good one <laughs> Emily, thank you for being on the show again. Uh, have you got anything to plug? Oh, it's a pleasure. I always love being here. Um, I, I think I will be plugging the same, my my, my trusty plug, because uh, I produce a history podcast called Past Tense. We dropped a new episode recently, and mm-hmm. uh, we have the last one in this volume coming up very soon. So now is a perfect time to uh, get stuck into it. So that's Past Tense. And you can find us on Twitter, you can find us on our website, and we're all good podcasts are available to stream and download. But my partner in crime with that Fiona who uh, writes and researches and presents past tense we also have a little outfit called mook barks which is a fortnightly newsletter of a few cultural tidbits that we liked that we found on the internet and elsewhere in the world 
So if you would like a little bit of a pick me up every other Tuesday, then you can sign up at our website and on our Twitter, which is at M-O-O-K-B-A-R-K-E-D, Mookbarked. Great. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, all the usual places. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different, but until then, it's goodbye from me. And bye from me. Bye. Bye.